In this podcast, we'll learn why iron is important and essential for functioning, how to diagnose iron deficiency in women and girls with bleeding disorders, and how best to approach treatment for this vulnerable group. Hemostasis Connect is an initiative of core to ed This podcast is supported by an educational grant from Takeda. The views in this podcast are the personal opinions of the experts. They do not necessarily represent the views of the experts' organisation or the rest of the Hemostasis Connect group. For experts' disclosures on conflict of interest, please go to hemostasisoncore2ed.com. So welcome to this podcast on iron deficiency and iron replacement in women and girls with bleeding disorders. My name is Dr. Michelle Lavin. I'm a consultant hematologist treating adult patients in the National Coagulation Centre in Dublin. And I'm delighted to be here with one of my colleagues who shares my passion for women and girls with bleeding disorders, Dr. Rosalind Duran, who I invite to introduce herself. Thank you, Michelle. So my name is Roselyne Doiron and I work in Paris Bisset Hospital and I'm taking care of children and adults with bleeding disorders in the Hemophilia Treatment Centre there. Today, uh, Michelle and I will, will discuss the importance of recognising iron deficiency in patients and how to correct it. And we will share our own experiences and discuss some practical do's and don'ts. So, Michelle, before we get into the details, why is iron deficiency an important topic in women with bleeding disorders? Well, I think, Rosalind, you'd agree with me that this is probably one of the most common problems we see in our clinics. And many women and girls who have a bleeding disorder, or indeed women who experience heavy menstrual bleeding, will frequently and repeatedly experience iron deficiency during their life. But you only find iron deficiency if you look for it. If you're waiting for what's the end point really or the end of the journey of iron deficiency, that's anemia. And people are very good at picking up anemia, but perhaps not as tuned into the fact that we can detect iron deficiency early and treat it and prevent people becoming anemic. So instead of focusing on the full blood count or the complete blood count and finding the end point of the journey, we'd like to identify women earlier on in that path and actually try and improve their overall health and quality of life by preventing them from getting to anemia. So for sure, iron deficiency, I probably prescribe and advise people on giving iron every day of my clinical life. It's just such an important and common problem. But everyone focuses on the anemia aspect, but we know that iron has huge roles in other parts of the body. When we think of our muscles are made of myoglobin and that has iron in it, iron is actually found in mitochondria throughout the body and is stored in most cells of the body, including immune cells. So it's really ubiquitously found throughout the body and its roles are beyond that of just maintaining a normal blood count. How often would you see it in your patients or is this the biggest problem in France as it is in Ireland? Well, I guess that's a very common issue, which is observed in the general population. I think that the WHO reported that more than 2 billion people are concerned all around the world. And this is particularly true in touching the girls and the women related to their menstruations and postpartum hemorrhage as well. So that's really a common health problem. But when it comes to women and girls with a bleeding disorder, then the prevalence might be much higher. Indeed, I think that in in, in my clinics, when I see the different types and the different severities of bleeding disorders, it will probably impact the prevalence that I will observe regarding the presence of iron deficiency and ultimately the anemia that I can observe as well. I think that for those who have a very severe primary hemostatic defect, like severe 
von Willebrand disease like type 3 von Willebrand disease or type 2a von Willebrand disease or for those who have very severe platelet function disorder like uh, Glanzmann thrombastenia I think that for those women, iron deficiency is extremely frequent and it's a little bit like we are running after and always behind a normal status of the iron in their body. And so they do require a very regular basis iron supplementation. When it comes to other defects, maybe coagulation defects of less severe type, like women with hemophilia or rare factor deficiencies, in my clinics, I see a bit less proportion of those girls and women with iron deficiency or less frequently needing to be treated. But still, it's important to know that the bleeding disorder may cause and contribute to iron deficiency, but sometimes you may have other factors as well that may also be added on the top of it. And for example, nutrition habits or very intense activity, sportive activities sometimes may have an impact as well. But maybe that's also another question, which is uh, depending on the criteria that we are using in order to define what is iron deficiency. And obviously this will impact the level of the prevalence that we may observe depending on what we are going to define as an iron deficiency. Yeah, so I think you're correct. Like it depends on what we use as our cutoff. And, you know, internationally, the WHO state the criteria ferritin, which is one of the key markers for iron deficiency of less than 15. But that's actually quite low. Once you get to that point, you're really chasing an already established iron deficiency. And there's been data to show that if you can start supplementation when levels are less than 30 or certainly certainly less than 30, but even less than 50, that there's a benefit and improvement in iron stores. So I think letting people get to a ferritin of 15 is certainly quite low in order to use that as a starting point for iron supplementation. But I suppose even taking a step back from that, the symptoms of iron deficiency can be so nonspecific that you really have to be focused on looking for them. Because when we think about what women experience, it can be headache, dizziness, tiredness, poor concentration. But they're often things that if you have a young family with a lot of young children, you can experience anyway. So people often will discount their symptoms of iron deficiency. So you have to be clued in and considering it to start checking for it. And in women who have heavy menstrual bleeding, I would agree with you that the prevalence will differ between the bleeding disorders. But if you have heavy menstrual bleeding, particularly those women who are bleeding heavily for a number of days or bleeding longer than a week, it's very difficult for them to intake enough iron in their normal diet to stop them from becoming iron deficient because they're just the the iron loss through blood loss. It's too high on a monthly level. And those women will frequently require at least oral iron supplementation. But getting back to the point, a really important point you raised about what's the threshold for iron deficiency. And there was a nice paper looking at the reference ranges applied in different laboratories in North America in 2021. And that's by Parker et al. in the Journal of Applied Laboratory Medicine. And they looked at what were the thresholds and the cutoffs used. And in fact, the majority of laboratories had a threshold for women that was below that WHO criteria of 15 micrograms for ferritin. So they were telling women who had levels of ferritins of 10 or even lower than that, that their iron was normal. And that comes back to how do we make reference ranges? Well, we bring in what we hope are healthy individuals and we check the blood sample of interest to us and then we design a normal reference range based on those results. But iron deficiency is so common amongst women, it's undoubtedly the case that iron deficient women were included in the establishment of these reference ranges. 
So it's akin to designing your liver function test reference ranges and including patients with cirrhosis in it. That wouldn't make sense. But that's what we're doing on an everyday basis when it comes to iron deficiency. So I think healthcare providers have to be aware of the limitations of their reference range and ensure that actually the reference range is appropriate for use when they get a result back. Otherwise, you risk falsely reassuring a woman that their iron is normal when in fact they're already deficient. So there's lots of different parameters of iron deficiency. So how would you encourage people to measure and check for iron deficiency, Rosalind? Well, I think that usually the clinicians are referring to iron deficiency only with this parameter of the ferritin levels. And this protein actually is extremely sensitive to quite a lot of situation and especially inflammatory status, which means that when you have an inflammatory status or an infection, you may have extremely high levels of ferritin that will be not reflecting the actual stock of iron that you have in your body. And so we know that in case of inflammatory status, it is not sufficiently reliable to assess the iron deficiency. So I think that's quite important to have a much wider use of other tests that can be implemented. And one of them is the um, saturation of the transferrin, which is probably much more reliable in the context of an inflammatory state. So for example, if you have a ferritin level let's say around 40 or 50, which seems normal based on the range values given by the lab. However, when it comes to a patient who has an inflammatory state, sometimes you could see saturation of the transferrin at very low level, like 15 or 10%, which will make this diagnosis of iron deficiency much more clear. In very complex situation, you may also require some more specific tests, a little bit more costly. This is also important to know, but you may also make some measurement of the soluble receptor of the transferrin, which will increase in case of actual iron deficiency and may help you to differentiate between just an inflammatory state or a true and actual iron deficiency that needs treatment but maybe you have other ways to use them in your practice. I think our practice would very much align with yours that I suppose the key messages are that a ferritin that's low, that's truly indicative of iron deficiency. So if you have a low ferritin, you can say somebody's iron deficient. But if you have a ferritin that's raised, you need to know whether that person has an ongoing inflammatory state because it is an acute phase reactant. And that's where a transfer and saturation that's 15% or less is indicative of iron deficiency as well in that situation. And if you're getting kind of flummoxed at that point and you're not certain reading your transferrin and your ferritin and you think there could be an inflammatory component, then a soluble transferrin receptor can be helpful. But I would find with our women with bleeding disorders, you'll often get the information you need just even from the ferritin. And that's a very useful indicator of iron deficiency in these patients. In terms of moving on to treatment, it really depends on at the time of the blood test, whether that person has been taking oral iron already or how long they've been taking it for. Is this considered a failure of oral iron or have they not tried it yet? 
But more than that, how are they taking their iron? Because in the past, the way that I feel doctors correct things are if something is low, we give you lots of it and try and bring it up. But in fact, that doesn't really work all that well in the setting of iron deficiency because you have an important hormone, as you know, hepcidin, that's released by the liver in response to iron in the gut and can actually reduce the amount of iron that's absorbed from the gut. So if you're giving somebody high doses, particularly if you're giving to them like twice a day, or sometimes I even hear people getting iron three times a day, which is just definitely going to make you constipated and not give you any relief in terms of your iron deficiency. So the more iron you ingest, the more hepcidin you release and the less iron that's absorbed. And in fact, studies have shown that alternate day iron, so taking one tablet every second day, can boost iron absorption in comparison to even daily iron. So it's one of those situations that less is actually more. And I think that requires a rethinking of our approach and for our patients in terms of how we manage iron deficiency, because that may be different to what they've heard over many years. If somebody has been taking iron in that way for a number of months and they're still failing to see an improvement, if I don't see any upward trajectory in terms of their iron, I will consider them for IV iron. Or if they have a specific, say, inflammatory bowel disease or poor absorption from their gut in the baseline, then those patients will generally do better with IV iron. In the past, I know we had a lot of concerns about anaphylaxis in relation to IV iron, but a recent European Medicines Agency report has shown that the risk of anaphylaxis is the same as placebo with the modern iron formulations. So I think that still given in a supervised environment, but it's not the newer formulations certainly have less risk associated with them than the old formulas. How would you find, is that similar to what you do in in France? Yes, and I would add as well those very frequent situations of pregnancy where you have an inflammatory state as well. And it has been proven now on many reports and studies that IV injections can really make a difference in order to correct much more rapidly the level of the iron deficiency and prevent from anemia, which may have some consequences both for the maternal health, but also for the neonate health. And so I think that's very important to have all these therapeutic different formulation that can be uh, used in a very flexible way and that's very important to know but I think you raised as well a point which is I think very important is about the tolerance of this medication and we frequently have some failure of the correction of the iron deficiency because of these tolerance issues and I think that's something which is very important when you have patients with iron deficiencies to make sure that they do understand that if they have some adverse reactions They have to call back prior to the scheduled clinic if needed in order to modify the treatment. And that needs some therapeutic education on how to treat, what to avoid, for example, to drink a lot of tea at the time you are taking your iron supplementations, for example. Such tips like this are very important to share. So when you correct the iron deficiency, it's also very important to make sure that the cause that led to this iron deficiency is well detected and diagnosed. Obviously, it could be just relying on some bleeding episodes, and especially in women with a bleeding disorder, even more in case of severe bleeding disorder. But do not forget that sometimes you may have other causes that need really to be um, diagnosed in order to avoid recurrence of this iron deficiency and potentially need to reassess how we manage the bleeding disorders in those women. Are they sufficiently treated regarding, for example, their menstrual cycle? Do they take tranexamic acid on the right dosage, etc.? And when you did all those two important points, 
correction of the iron deficiency and treat the underlying cause. It's also important to have a regular follow-up because these kind of uh, issues may recur frequently and we really need to have some um, close follow-up in order to assess the um, absence of recurrence of this situation. I personally like to have some um, follow-up when I make the diagnosis of an iron deficiency at least monthly for the two or three first months and after that uh, two or three times a year in order to have some uh, feedback and follow-up afterwards. What are you doing? Absolutely. We tend to see the patients back within about four to six weeks to see that there is an improvement in their iron status. Like there may not be a correction, you know, you wouldn't expect it that quickly, but you want to see that there is an upward trajectory to their numbers, that they're improving with the start of the oral therapies and to make sure that they're, as you said, tolerated. There's lots of different iron formulations and some of them have more elemental iron than others. So we'll tend to start with ferrous fumarate has the highest elemental iron available to us here. But if that isn't tolerated, people may change to a different type of oral iron. And as long as they're seeing an improvement in their iron numbers, you know, that's fine. But I, I tend not to use things like multivitamins that have iron because a lot of them often have very small amounts of available iron. We advise people to take a specific iron supplement. But I think you raise a really important point that we haven't touched on a lot about pregnancy. And I know there are additional podcasts about pregnancy in women and girls with bleeding disorders. But just in terms of, you know, anemia is a huge problem in pregnancy. And if we are setting women up to be anemic or iron deficient going into pregnancy, this is a time where there is a really high utilization of iron for the developing fetus. And the fetus will be prioritized and the mother's stores will be taken. And that's just the natural physiological process. But there is good data about there's a twofold risk of premature delivery in women who are iron deficient and of lower birth weight infants as well. So there's implications not only for the mother, but also for the baby. And there's some emerging data that reduced iron availability to the fetus may actually impair or cause neurocognitive issues in the infant later in life. So we need more research and understanding in that area about what is the implications if a developing fetus doesn't have available iron when we know that iron is ubiquitous throughout all the cells. And we're also sending a, a mother into a situation where we know they're at a higher risk of postpartum hemorrhage. We know they have an increased risk of secondary postpartum hemorrhage. They're also going to be completely fatigued from having a newborn infant at home. You know, the least we can do is actually check and maintain and supplement their iron. And that may be IV iron, particularly if it's coming to the third trimester, because oral won't effectively and rapidly replenish their iron stores. So I think people need to be more aware of that as an issue in the obstetric population. And um, we need more research to understand the implications for the next generation to iron deficient mothers. So interesting to hear what you are saying. <laughs> so this is, well, this is, you know, the common practice that we share on, on our clinics usually. And so that's good to hear that we have to move forward on um, those practices. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think, you know, I, I didn't start out a passionate advocate for iron, but I think when you see and you hear the problems that your patients face and the improvements in their lives when you actually supplement somebody with iron, like it's the easiest thing you can do right is to give somebody iron and to have them come back to your clinic and say, I didn't realize I was so tired. I didn't realize I thought that was normal. It's often difficult in studies to objectively show a quality of life improvement. And I think particularly for women, because 
we accept a low quality of life or a low energy level and we just assume that's because of everything else in our work-life mix. But when you actually treat people who are iron deficient and you get on top of it, it's such an improvement for those individuals that if for if only for purely selfish reasons and you want to feel great at your job, I'd encourage everyone to try and, <laughs> and help those poor iron deficient women out because they're going to be really thankful when they see the change in terms of their day-to-day functioning. So, Rosin, thank you so much. It's always great to talk to you about iron deficiency and about women and girls with bleeding disorders in general. It's a topic I know we're both passionate about. What do you feel are the key take-home messages? I would say frequency. This is an extremely frequent issue and this really needs to be assessed on a regular basis and especially in our patients with bleeding disorders because they do face such kind of uh, complications on really so frequent basis. So for me to implement the diagnosis, the treatment and the follow-up of this issue is particularly important. And the second point would be that new strategies of supplementation and treatments are available nowadays. And uh, it's important to apply those new modalities based on what we have learned the last few years. And so that would be my two key points. But maybe you also have some key points and take home messages. For me, I think it's if you look for it, you'll find it. So if you have women attending with a bleeding disorder who have any degree of heavy menstrual bleeding, even if they don't necessarily appreciate it themselves that their periods are heavy. You should check routinely for ferritin or for your iron studies and be cautious about interpreting that in context to your local laboratory. I think once you see a ferritin dropping below 30, you should definitely be thinking about supplementation in this group because these are a high risk group for the development of iron deficiency and overt anemia. So I think being vigilant and checking and starting supplementation, even if not suggested by your laboratory parameters, you know, being aware of the limitations of how we develop those reference ranges. They would be my two key messages. And just remember that this is a group of women who are either going to continue to menstruate or become pregnant, both of which will require ongoing iron requirements. So even when you correct it, be aware to check it again in the future, because undoubtedly it will drop unless you treat the underlying cause in terms of heavy menstrual bleeding. And if they're pregnant, they will have increased utilization throughout that pregnancy as well. Well, thank you so much, Michelle. It was so great talking to you about this important topic. Have a nice day. Bye-bye. This Hemostasis Connect podcast was brought to you by CourtoEd Independent Medical Education. For more information, please visit courtoed.com and select Hemostasis.